There's four ways to make money. Get more people to buy more product more often at more margin. Welcome to Carmelli Exchange. I'm Faisal Carmelli and I'm here with CEO and co-founder of Cult, Chris Nealon. All right, Chris, I've got my clock out. All right. Ready? 30 seconds. Give us your elevator pitch of what, who you are and what does Cult do? Uh, we're a marketing advisory firm. We help transform businesses into cult brands by applying eight specific principles that we've learned from over a decade of research about what iconic, beloved brands do that mediocre brands don't do or don't do very well. Look at that. Within less than 20 seconds, you're able to do this. I think that is a huge difference between how you've nailed it down and what other businesses are doing out there. How are you able to actually zone into less than 20 seconds? Well, we've taken our positioning very seriously. Uh, there's no shortage of marketing consultants and ad agencies in the world. So uh, I think that you do have to have a unique point of view and a unique positioning or else you're just going to be commoditized and people are going to choose you because you're the easiest or the cheapest. We tend to be pretty hard to work with and pretty expensive to work with. And so in order to do that, you have to have something that makes it worth the while. When we started Cult, uh, an advisor to us told us that a poorly positioned firm isn't gonna get somebody to walk across the street to inquire, but a properly positioned firm would get a client to fly across the country to meet with you. And so in the first couple of years of Colt, we had a policy that we'll never go anywhere to meet a client. Yeah. They have to come to us. Okay. And it was very controversial because in our space, we live in the RFP space. Yeah. I consider it like an episode of The Bachelor where everybody's begging to get a rose yeah. from the one person. And we said, forget that. that. That's a horrible game to play. It's a horrible business to be a part of. So we just kept refining it and refining it. And in particular for us, we realized we needed IP. We needed a piece of intellectual property that would become desirable. So that was where we learned what these eight cult brand principles were and we invested in that research and we invented some of the stuff that you see around you here in this room to, to recognize and reward those brands. And that's what I think C-suites find very desirable is they want to know what those eight things are and how they can be applied. So kind of give me an idea of what different work experiences you've had that kind of was the genesis to help you with, uh, with Cult. Yeah, so a couple of things. I started client-side, uh, and I, I tend to believe that the best agency professionals or consultants have experience sitting on the other side of the table, mm -hmm. being the client. I think if we're not careful, service providers think it's just about the idea. But if you understand the client-side world, the idea is about 30% of it. And getting the political buy-in and the funding and integrating with other peers that are not reporting to you. There's just a lot of other stuff that goes into getting something brought to market. And so I really value the time I spent client-side, both at um, John Deere and at the Home Depot. Mm -hmm. John Deere was a master class of understanding what a cult brand was. I remember going to the Home Depot, and at the time... They had a billion dollar annual advertising budget. Like, yeah. what can you not do with a billion dollars? So, that was a kid in a candy store just trying all sorts of crazy things. And so, I kind of took all of that and had an opportunity to come up here to Calgary in 2010 to take over an agency that was largely servicing a Canadian tire company. Okay. And that let me scratch a new itch around entrepreneurism, which I had never really done before, and uh, learn how to be the boss. Like, cut the safety net like these decisions I now have to make and live or die by them so that's probably what I like the best of, of client side or agency side or entrepreneurial side the rest of my career will be on the entrepreneurial side 
When you started Cult, was it a, I've got a concept that I want to launch or was it, I want to start the business and then the principles of the business, what differentiates you from your competition evolved over time? So a year and a half in, we got fired by our biggest account. So in the spirit of necessity is the mother of invention, we had to figure out what are we going to do to replace that revenue. And I think that we just had the patience to say, let's build what we really want versus desperately scramble to replace something that we don't really want, but it would be nice to pay the bills. So, yeah, we, we built Cult from the ground up of intentionally being differentiated. We actually used a methodology called Blue Ocean. Are you okay. familiar with that? I've heard of it, yeah. You kind of take two proven constructs to create a third. Mm-hmm. So Cirque du Soleil took Broadway musicals and the Barnum and Bailey Circus, two proven constructs, and then created a third thing that never existed before. Yeah. So we took advertising agencies and business consultancies to proven successful models and created a new thing called an engagement agency. Uh, When we came out, our press release talked about there's a new species that's been discovered. It's a new type of service provider. And so we built differentiation and hopefully distinction and desirability into that offering uh, right from the start. How was that from a financial perspective? Because that six months sounds like there was no revenue coming in. So luckily, we never got to zero. Um, We lost about 60% of the business over a three-month wind-down period. And we were given a uh, sort of a separation bonus if it went well. And with that bonus, we called the leadership team to get us, what do you want to do? You can get your share and take your ball and go home, or we can reinvest it in the business and do something else with it. Three of my business partners took the money and left. Two of the business partners said, let's put it back into the company. And we had just enough seed capital to basically buy a six months worth of runway. So I never really went home at night worried I wasn't going to be able to buy groceries. But I did know we had a time bomb. We had a six-month runway to make this work. And so we used that to inform all of our deadlines. You know, I go back to the beginning of when my business partner and I merged our individual practices or businesses together. We sat down at a table similar to this. And we looked at what our business was and actually what we wanted to do. It was a pivot. And if we wanted to change the way what we handle and how we handle clients. And I was shitting bricks here, man. Like I was yeah. scared because what if we cannot get that runway going and, and build up? So the fear of, you know, I'm going to give up. I have a young family. I'm taking a big risk here. Um, on, on the other side, it was, well, we got to do what's right. We can't just continue to do what we've been doing because we're not going to get the results or we're not going to make the impact. And so it was very challenging for me. And what I noticed about how we changed the way that we approached our practice and who we were serving and why we were serving them, um, that gave us the mindset to say, the money will come. Our uh, holy crap moment came when we were an ad agency, we could basically do anything for anyone. Every business needs a website or needs a brochure or needs a brand identity. So you can kind of find a way to create relevance to anybody at any time. But that's also, I think, the path to destruction is being all things to all people. So when we, when we first started Colt, we said we're only going to work with Colt brands. So we identified the 500 businesses that we deemed Colt capable. This is before we had done our research. And our model has now shifted where we work with businesses that aspire to be Colt brands as much as we work with Colt brands only. But we went from a universe of hundreds of thousands of prospects to 500. Then number one on that list was Harley-Davidson. Yeah. Harley-Davidson called us and said, we're looking for a new agency. Would you be willing to do this RFP? We've, and you're late to the party, by the way. We've already started this process, but we just read about you. We'd like to invite you as a late entrant into the process. 
every bone of your body is like, yes, like this is your dream client inviting yeah. you. But one of our truisms was we're not going to do RFPs. RFPs. Yeah. And so my business partner had more courage than I did. And he said, we'd love to work with you. Unfortunately, we don't respond to RFPs. To which they then said, okay, would you be at least willing to fly out to Toronto to meet with our team? Okay. Another thing we said we're never going to do is we're not going to go seek clients. We're going to, sorry, we don't fly out to meet clients unfunded. If you would like to pay us to come out and visit you. And they said, well, we can't pay you guys. All the other people are working for free. Yeah. So, yeah. They said, all right, listen, we're going to be flying through Calgary. We have a layover. Would you be willing to meet us at the airport so that we can meet during the layover? We said, yes. Okay. I will drive to the airport there to meet go. you here. And that started the process. And I don't know if it was the strength of our positioning, but they ended up selecting us. And that became a huge uh, you know, boost to our ego and our self-esteem and gave us some confidence that this crazy thing called cult is going to work because yeah. they were our first big client. So you were, you were talking about the, uh, we're not going to travel, we're going to have them come to us. You're playing hard to get. Is that a strategy you, you think is something that business owners should be doing? I struggle with the word playing hard to get because that implies it's a gimmick. Gotcha. Our model was... Pediatric brain surgeons versus family clinics. Mm -hmm. Pediatric brain surgeons aren't playing hard to get. They just are hard to get. So I would argue if you're trying to go more upscale, in North America at least, expertise is hard to access. You pay a premium for it. Now, you have to walk the walk. We like to say if you have a very provocative positioning, you better have very persuasive proof points. You better be able to demonstrate why your fee is twice as expensive or why your waiting list is six months out kind of a thing. So I would never play hard to get, but I would aspire to become hard to get by building the kinds of businesses that make you really difficult to access. My business partner and I talk about um, the exclusive club. Yeah. To be part of our clientele, it's an exclusive club. We're not going to be all things to all people. We're going to be all things to some people. There are criteria that you have to meet before you even come in our door. And so I think the whole concept of the hard-to-get mentality is we want to make sure we're dealing with the right person. It's almost like a filtering process to some degree. And there's also consequences. I, I, I like to think of the natural size of a tree. I don't believe in perpetual growth. I think that eventually a business achieves what it's able to achieve, and then you start focusing on, do you want to plant another tree? Do you want to just eat the fruit that this tree is creating? You know, this idea that Wall Street has created, which is you have to be in a perpetual place of growth for shareholder value, is often not what a small entrepreneur might want. They might want a lifestyle business. And maybe what you want is just the world's most desirable clients. Or if you're that brain surgeon, you just want to work on the hardest, most difficult projects so you can get published and and, and receive industry acclaim, right? That that has consequences. It might mean you're not going to chair a hospital. You're not going to achieve a billion dollars, but that's okay. You need to really be honest with what's your own ambition as a business owner and then create the business that makes that lifestyle possible and chase that dream and don't adhere to some other scorecard about what you want to do. So businesses out there right now, either generally when I speak to them, I ask them, how are you generating new customers or growth? Many of them are saying it's referral base. Some of them are saying they're actually doing paid advertising or they're doing some sort of media strategy behind it. The problem that both are saying to me is I'm not growing at this pace that I would like to grow at. So how do you discuss that kind of situation with businesses when they're coming to you? And we're not talking about major brands that have, have kind of had a different journey 
We're talking about small, medium-sized businesses, maybe five, 10 years in the industry, and they're they're looking for growth. I'm terrified when clients call me up and say, all of our growth to date's been through word of mouth. They think I'm gonna give them a high five because I'm such a fan of advocacy and word of mouth marketing. But if you've never learned how to create net new business, word of mouth is only ever gonna get you so far because you're gonna just keep getting people in similar ponds. Word of mouth is an indicator that you're good at what you do. Because if people aren't referring, then your value proposition or your offering is not as good as it needs to be. But that's where you start. That's not where you end, right? So you need to have a counterbalance of other ways to scale. Advertising is part of that. So is content marketing. So is the in-store experience or the usability of your website. So is your pricing strategy. So is your product offering mix. Maybe you need to go to your existing people and now sell them twice as much stuff. There's four ways to make money. Get more people to buy more product more often at more margin. Advertising-centric businesses only focus focus on the first one. Go get more people. Mm -hmm. We follow this debunked model of the purchase funnel, which hasn't been true for a decade. But you can also get existing people to buy more often. You can get existing people to buy more stuff when they come, which means you have to grow your portfolio. That's what Yeti's done. Yeti's just found more things to... I got you in with that $400 cooler, but now I'm going to find a way to get you to buy the camping chair and the expensive dog bowl. Or the other big one, particularly for brands that have gotten addicted, we were with a lot of retailers that are on these flyers. They're addicted to these retail flyer programs. <laughs> and you start looking at the percentage of product that's sold at 30 40 50% margin. Old Navy was at 70% off 32 weeks out of the year. That's ridiculous, right? The next strategy is I can start paying you $20 to come in the store. Yeah. Right? You just can't be on that extreme promotion. So what if you were 50% off 30 weeks out of the year? I just made you millions of dollars, right? What if you're 40% off 28 weeks out of the year, right? Weaning people off of these excessive promotions to get higher margin and finding ways to introduce pricing creativity, particularly in the B2B side. The idea of presenting of options, moving to subscription-based models, that's where I would start. Like, I don't think it's, hey, Chris, I'm not growing as fast as I want. What more advertising should I do? Like, what do you really want? You want $10 million more dollars? Because $10 million more million may not mean more advertising. It might mean let's get these existing people to buy twice as much stuff or get these people to you know, spend more money on higher premium product. How does a business owner figure that out? Well, call me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's, it's being very strategic. It's, again, we have been sold this bag of beans that makes us believe that we need to advertise more. Mm-hmm. We went from when I started Colt, we were spending as an industry in North America $170 billion. We're now spending $300 billion, and yet we're losing 1,600 businesses a day, right? The prescription that we're taking is not fixing the, is not the right remedy for the problem that we're facing. Yeah. Let's really diagnose the problem. And what ad agencies, the problem is, they don't even get to ask the question because the client decides we need more advertising, and then they do an RFP to go find an ad agency to do it. And their job is to do what the client asks, go do more advertising. What the client should have said is, I need more sales, and then the answer may or may not have been, I need more advertising to get yeah. that answer. So when you had that list of 500 companies, what was the criteria to become a cult brand? There's five symptoms of a cult brand. The first and foremost is the, the role of advocacy or word of mouth in their business. So what percentage of their business or their net new could they attribute to friends telling friends as opposed to an ROI and a paid media spend? Because they tend to get so much word of mouth They don't spend as much as their category peers on paid media. Third is they discount less. 
So you can look at what percentage of their products are sold at full price and ideally at a premium for their category. Starbucks is not the cheapest coffee. Porsche is not the cheapest car, right? So you start to look at how are they getting away with that? How are they charging more? Yeah. Apple is yep. twice as much as a Samsung. Fourth deals with... Um, uh, internal productivity. We like to say cult brands are built from the inside out. There was a really high correlation between great places to work and brands that were beloved externally. And so we're fascinated by those correlations. In fact, about a third of our business is almost more traditional HR work than even advertising. And, and we love how cult brands spend a lot of time using marketing resources to do internal stuff with their, with their it could be franchisees, but most of the time it's with the employees. And then I'm, there's a fifth one that now is escaping me. So how do we explain what the definition of I have a brand is? A brand is simply a shortcut for a reputation. And people, your reputation can be I don't have much of a reputation, right? Yeah. I think, I hope we're beyond the days of having to help people understand your brand is not your identity. It's not your logo, your tagline, your, your word mark, that kind of thing. It's the feelings that are emoted when people interact with you. And that's where I think... We spend more energy helping people manage that customer experience where people are looking for get-rich-quick schemes or the quick weight loss pill. All these little snake oil salesman solutions is they're trying to make them seem better than they really are. And you know, there's many businesses, I'd argue most businesses, are better at marketing and advertising than they are at delivering a remarkable experience that's worthy of somebody's adoration and repeat purchase. So we just simply tried to flip the switch. And we got it from the founder of Geek Squad. Are you familiar with yeah, Geek Squad? Yeah. So years ago, um, when we were working with Best Buy, Best Buy bought Geek Squad. And we brought this guy in. And he had grown his business to several million dollars and never spent a penny on advertising. And Best Buy wanted to start using their marketing might and their advertising might to get them much more pervasive. And he said once, advertising is a tax that brands pay for being unremarkable. And it always stuck with me saying, it's not about are you going to spend money or not spend money. You're going to spend money. The question is, are you going to spend it trying to convince people you're great or just being great? And he always just wanted to be great because in, and everything about Geek Squad was intentionally quirky, right? They weren't the typical tech support group. They, they had made up this mock police force that was going to, you know, and they, they had their, their, their Mormon missionary attire and they yeah. had these fleets of cars and they leaned into the geek part of it. Yeah. And that all took money, but it wasn't advertising. And yet they grew and doubled and doubled and doubled over and over again. And so that became, again, just some of the foundational thoughts into our hypothesis you know, you start building this repertoire of experience, obviously looking under the hood at Harley-Davidson. Harley-Davidson spends 80% of their discretionary budget on existing customers, not on getting new customers. Because if they get their existing customers, you know what they like to do? Get their friends to ride bikes with them on the weekend. Mm -hmm. So you create this cult, and then they go get other people to join that cult, right? So I feel like everybody could acknowledge, yeah, Harley's a pretty remarkable brand. And it's like, well, then why aren't you just doing what Harley's doing mm -hmm. and they don't have the courage they don't have the wisdom they don't have the faith whatever it is everybody starts to dismiss yeah but I'm not Tim Hortons or I'm not Red Bull or mm -hmm. I'm not Levi's it's like every one of those companies started Sorry. small and insignificant yeah. it was that mindset of what's your ambition and your desire because you can find inspiration in those remarkable stories with social media being what it is do you believe that businesses today 
use that as an excuse to try to market themselves or try to get reach versus try to get engagement? Yes. It started with email. Businesses ruined email. Email could have been this remarkable marketing tool and it just turned into a cheaper print flyer or mm-hmm. a cheaper way to promote. You know, one of the truisms of a cult brand, one of those eight principles deals with co-creation and this idea that mediocre brands think their job is to talk a lot and cult brands have learned that their job is to listen and to respond. So if you're using social media as a listening device, as a co-creation device, then I think you have a leg up than if you're just using it as a way to, did you know this? And we have this, and come try this, and this is on sale, right? Yeah. It's not, it's just a way to ruin it. Do you think that business owners today are in a need to shift from focusing on these, I call them easy to use platforms like social media to get their word out versus investing in their own clients and, and their own customers so that they can bring that brand, that cult brand in there? I'm not anti-social media. I just think, what, what, what are you doing it for? I think the number one thing we see with clients is they're doing it because they feel like they have to be in every channel. Mm-hmm. So they're just busy that they're not being productive. It's like you can probably cut half of the channels out. Yeah. The ones that you do choose to be in, you should be in very intentionally and very strategically about what you're trying to do. Is this a customer care mechanism? Is this a community where you're going to foster engagement amongst your fans? You're there to like host the party versus be the party? Yeah. I think you do need a social media strategy, but if you're starting the meeting with, our competitors have just gotten into Snapchat. We now need a Snapchat strategy. You're you're already misinformed. Yeah. Right. It needs to be based on what we're trying to accomplish. Is it going to be Snapchat or Instagram or LinkedIn or Pinterest? Which one of these platforms is going to be the best tool for us to deliver our unique? Yeah, it's a tool, not a, not a destination. I like the way that businesses are are exploring on social media. I like the fact that they're testing things out. What I like about social media versus conventional media, because I'm on both. Conventional media, you don't really get a chance to tweak and, and adjust. So I do like the fact that social media allows my businesses to kind of target and get more to that specific group that I want to engage in. What I think we use social media for, and you've mentioned this, where I think it's a big problem, is it's just a spray and pray. And let's hope we get some business out of it versus strategically going after that demographic, that, that kind of customer that you're looking for. I think social media is moving in the right direction. I think we can abuse it because it's cheap. Yeah. And we had a conversation about this um, a couple days ago where with my team, and just because you have a thousand people who liked your, your post, doesn't mean they're going to be customers. And I think that's where businesses are actually losing out on it because somewhere along the line, people said that's what's going to create engagement. But what they fail to show is that it's going to create business. Amen. I mean, so I I tell the story of I I was a consultant with Blockbuster in the dying days of Blockbuster. It wasn't my finest moment. I don't usually brag about being the the, the lead strategist on Blockbuster. But we would sit in these meetings and you know the email marketing guy would come in, mm-hmm. and the direct marketing gal would come in, and they'd be bragging about the KPIs of their channels, the mm-hmm. open rates, the response rates, the coupon redemption rates, and asking for more money, while literally the Titanic is sinking. I mean, the business couldn't be performing worse, but they're optimizing these channels. And the problem with most marketing organizations is they become very channel centric. Mm -hmm. So if you have an in-house social media team, they start to believe their job is to maximize social media engagement. Mm -hmm. When reality, their job is to grow the business. And if somebody was to realize the best way to do that is to do less social media, what kind of courageous integrity would it take for them to say, you know what? 
My job is done here. You should fire me and take that money and put it into a sales force or into a post-purchase program or whatever. But we don't. We all start to get, create these little fiefdoms and start to think our job is to grow our departments. Yeah. So you start seeing these huge email marketing teams and content teams and SEO marketing teams, and they're all taking credit because attribution is so difficult. They're all taking credit for the same piece of business, and they're all grabbing for resources. And it, what we need to stop to say is these are all just means to an end. Yeah. They could all go away tomorrow, and we'd be fine if the business had another way to actually succeed. No business needs a social media strategy. You create one if you've deemed all the other ideas are failing, and so this is now our next best attempt to achieve the business goal. Hmm. Right? And that's where I get very frustrated is that you create these budgets that they're 10% over year over year. And it's like, why aren't we trying to decrease those expenditures? They're, they're necessary evils, but they're not even necessarily that necessary. Yeah. It's if we had something better, they could all go away. Because there's ample examples of brands. Costco doesn't have a paid media strategy. And they make $70 billion a year. They charge you to walk in their store. Yeah. It's a ridiculous business model. But they figured it out, right? And it's like, we need more creativity to imagine how do we grow business, not grow social media followers. So do you think businesses should have a percentage of their revenue set aside for marketing? Uh, hmm. If by marketing you mean growth initiatives, yes. If by marketing you mean paid media, then no. Tell me the difference between the two. Marketing used to be about product offerings, value propositions, service delivery, customer experience, post-purchase behavior, the customer experience. It's devolved into most companies having a markdowning department. It's find a way to get more discounts out. Find a way to offer something for free. Find a way to drive more butts into seats or beds into heads or whatever your business model is. So I don't think there's a lot of marketing that's going on today. I think that there's just a lot of marketing communications, promotions, and paid media. And I want to try to go back to, if we actually were better at our craft of marketing, probably a lot of this other stuff would just go away. When you look at small and medium-sized businesses today, what are some of the things that they need to do to create that cult feeling? I'll give you a really great example. There's a small pest control company, okay. right? I think they do maybe $3 million a year. Okay. They need more business. The fallacy is believing that the best way to get another customer is to leave a flyer on their doorstep or to run a radio ad or to get a billboard. They think that they are the authority and that the reason why they're not being selected is that people simply don't know who they are. The reality is the way that most of us choose a pest control company is I come home and there's pests in my house. My wife freaks out, says we got to get a pest control company. And I ask somebody, hey, do you have a pest control company that you're using? I go to a neighbor. I go to my Facebook group. I call my dad. Have you? I, I need to get smart real quick. Yeah. Knowing the power of influencer versus advertising, this pest control company, how do you know when your pest control company has done its job? Mm. You don't really, just kind of the pests start going away. Maybe you're home when they came to spray, maybe you're at the office and they just did it around the perimeter. Like it's kind of an invisible service, yeah. right? So their job was to make the invisible visible. So they left a tiny little micro eviction notice note on the floor under the fridge kind okay. of a thing, okay. right? So that when you come home, you notice this little posty note thing. What is this? And it was a very cleverly written thing notifying the pest that they're no longer allowed to live here okay. by the pest control company. Nice. Hundreds of customers 
put that on their Instagram saying, what a clever little thing, my pest control. Look at how cute this is. Look yeah. at how funny this is. Look how clever it is. And now hundreds of people are basically a non-commissioned sales force. What did it cost to create a little printed post-it note thing? Yeah. 60 cents, a dollar a piece kind of a thing, right? It's somebody thinking about what's the actual experience of what a satisfied customer looks like, right? We've done the same thing with energy companies. Mm-hmm. Like we don't sell energy, we sell 70 degrees. Yeah. Nobody needs energy. They yeah. just want a comfortable, that's Fahrenheit, that, yeah, yeah, 24 yeah. degrees, whatever it is in Celsius, <laughs> right? It's like, you just have to be smart. You have to really understand what people are actually using you for and what would actually get them to talk. We like to talk. Yeah. There's, a, there's a hotel in LA, okay. um, crappy hotel. <laughs> Okay. Um, my kids beg me to go there every time because at their pool is a popsicle hotline where they can pick up the phone and somebody from the front desk simply answers what flavor and they'll say cherry and within two minutes somebody walks out and hands them a free cherry popsicle look at that my kid will eat eight dollars worth of popsicles but I spend $100 more a night to stay at that crappy hotel because it gave him something to do and to talk about, yeah. right? And I want to be a good dad. And if my kid wants to go there versus the Marriott, which is vanilla, which has nothing memorable, I've never blogged about my Marriott experience ever, <laughs> but here I am talking about the Popsicle hotline, yeah. right? It's people have to just bake something in that creates novelty or creates desirability. Isn't it truly understanding what your customer is there for? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's getting your head into the customer and understanding what's their expectation for the category yeah. and at a minimum deliver on that and then can you find a way to exceed it. Yeah. Most of the time, you don't even have to exceed it. Most of the time, you're going to win just by meeting the expectation. It's always emotional. It's like the data is really clear on that. Almost all decisions are rational. Nobody buys a Porsche because you need one. Now, you go home to your wife and you tell her lots of reasons why this is going to make a lot of sense for (laughs) us financially. And so getting into that psychology and understanding what's really going on then has to translate into your pitch. You talk about the Porsche, I I own one. And it was 100% emotive. I know about the depreciation. I know how much money I lose. I know how much it costs to maintain. Like, I know my numbers. That is the dumbest thing I do every time. And I don't even own it for a long period of time. Yep. I flip cars every three years, but I'm emotive. I, I caught on and, I'm, and I will justify it after. My favorite story about that was BMW versus Mercedes because they're both well-built German machines, mm-hmm. right? But BMW went the rational approach, the ultimate driving machine. And it talked tech, it talked motors and horsepower. And Mercedes tried to play that game, but BMW just did it better. Yeah. And so if you can't say my German engineers are better than your German engineers, you have to play a different kind of game. And Mercedes went down the path of the epitome of a life of achievement. Don't even make it about the car. Make it about the badge. I deserve this. Mm -hmm. I've earned this. I want people to know. Not in a necessarily snobby way, because I actually think the research would say more people hate BMW owners than they hate Mercedes owners. There's a different genre there, even though they're essentially the same kind of vehicle. But I love that idea. That's all branding. It's positioning in the marketplace's mind of why are you buying this. And if you want to be able to drive fast on the Autobahn, get a BMW. 
But if you want to be able to feel good about yourself every time you start the car, saying this is a little luxury. Yeah. And you know, whether it's a $7 Starbucks, whether it's a $2,500 watch, whether it's a $100,000 vehicle, we find these moments in our lives to pat ourselves on the back yeah. and say, you know what, I deserve this. And that's what you get every time you drive around in that Porsche. Yeah. And I think Porsche did a brilliant job of recognizing that it's not a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. That's too ostentatious. Porsche is a sports car of that caliber, but it's made for everyday use because you get that dopamine hit every single every day. Every single day. It's like a little hug to myself. Exactly. <laughs> I remember when I started working at a job, the boss said to me, day two, you should be lucky to be here. You should be privileged to be working for me. That didn't... Not that I'm like I'm never going to work for somebody ever again. Um, and so, but the shift was, you are now working for me. You should feel fortunate enough that you have a job, so on and so forth. That shift is well. You should be lucky that I'm the employee, that I'm working here, that I'm contributing. And that shift is happening. But I think there's going to be a lot of businesses that are going to still have that old school mentality. Uh, we're seeing a bit of a renaissance right now. I think leadership. Even myself, speaking personally, I think I was a better boss than I was a leader. Because I think as a boss, I was very task-centric, very numbers-driven, and I churned through relationships and people in a way that I now have a lot of regret about. And I think that um, coming through the pandemic with this awakening of what people want to spend their time doing, what's an appropriate amount of time, what companies do I want to align myself with, they're not revolting against I don't want to work anymore. They're revolting against I don't want to work for you. So I do think that uh, this is going to be the era, the next whatever, 5, 10, 15 years, the Brene Browns, the Simon Sinek, those thought leaders are starting to sink in that we need to bring humanity back. And what we're losing is that Jack Welsh, that shareholder value at all costs sort of mentality, which I think the Harvard Business Review would say those were flawed operating models. So do you think that it's turning to become more employee-centric environments? For the brands that are going to win. For the brands that are going to win. And so if you were to look at the landscape, is it a normal distribution curve? 20% will fall off because they can't do it? No, because in North America, at least, we're already over product. There's already too many choices. Yeah. I think it's going to be much more dramatic. I think there'll be 50% losers. We're already seeing, like I said, 1,600 businesses a day. Okay. The, 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 the Fortune 500 used to be around for 50 years or now around for 17 years. Like The pace to demise is increasing. It's yeah. happening more rapidly. Yeah. That's what business owners don't understand, that there's going to be a big shift. Our number one request has been, can you help us find talent? Of course. We, we're just, we, the war for talent has happened. This, this awakening, this isn't some theory. This yeah. is happening now where they're saying our biggest impediment to growth is I can't put enough people. Chick-fil-A hopes that they never have to go back to in-room dining again. Yeah. They said we're making more money just catering through the drive-through and pickup because I can reduce my staff. I don't have to worry about the cleanup. So it's like they're reimagining models now saying, what if I didn't even have to have the people because I can't convince people to come? Do you think this is going to impact larger businesses or more the small, medium size? The brands, Airbnb is always going to have a lineup of people begging to work there. Zappos, Google, like if you've built that brand that has that cult-like following, you'll have an embarrassment of riches is where the top talent and the best MBAs are always going to go and want to work for you. So in that sense, smaller businesses that haven't earned that reputation are going to have to do a lot more. And it's probably going to be in the form of signing bonuses, relocation. And so that's a lot more overhead. And can your financials absorb 
that. And then what if they leave in two years, mm-hmm. right? And or so less. then like, how do you keep them around to justify that front-loaded ROI? We're starting to see employment contracts that mimic sporting athletes, mm-hmm. where it's like come in for a three-year term and it's back-loaded so that, but we just kind of understand that I'm not expecting you to be here forever. We're going to have a new agreement every couple of years where we're going to renegotiate what this actually looks like. And I don't think many HR departments are well equipped for that sort of employee empowerment where they're the prize to be won. Do you think this has been because of the government stimulus that have been going around? And at, should the, they cut at the that low off? income jobs, for sure, the government has hurt small business by making it easy for people to not have to go get work. Yeah. But no, I really think that COVID has helped accelerate this fact that we were on a, the pendulum had swung too far for what a, you know, a 60 hour work week for a modest wage. The, the demise of the middle class, we're seeing it's a miniature revolution, but rather than pickets and unions, it's just being done with choice now. And if everybody, if Google says you don't have to be in California, Google is now every employer's competitor because anybody can work anywhere and work for Google. And so the, the idea of remote work has made it much easier for employees to get picky. Hmm. All right, Chris, top three tips or advice that you'd like to give? I'll give one tip to entrepreneurs, which is to recognize that that's a species unto itself. Mm-hmm. And I don't think as a society, we've done a lot of favors for entrepreneurs. I think the education system has failed entrepreneurs. I think Hollywood and the media has overglorified entrepreneurs. And so I think we need to find solace with each other and uh, participate in a, a mentor group program or a community where you can be very vulnerable and be very honest. Sometimes you can't do that with your staff. They need you to be perfect and confident. Yeah. But um, it, you, when you're scared or concerned, you need a, a safe place to go. And so I think we need to band together better as entrepreneurs. I also think entrepreneurs need to recognize, I heard it from Elon Musk, that the reason why most businesses fail is that they're just not different enough. Mm. The Tesla was not a 20% better Prius it was a 200% better Prius. Mm -hmm. And that maybe your enthusiasm for your entrepreneurial pursuit didn't mean you needed to create a new thing. Maybe you just needed to join a more entrepreneurial company. So I do think we're over-entrepreneured in North America and that most people should realize if you're gonna start something, be drastically different than the alternative, not moderately better. Now, best advice for being a cult brand how to become a cult brand is easy. I can teach you that in a matter of weeks. It really comes down to your desire. Mm-hmm. What are you actually trying to do? Way too many people are just trying to be successful. Cult brands are trying to be significant, and there's a difference. You can't be significant if you're not successful. So I, I don't think it's an either or, but you can be successful without being significant. And I wish that more leaders were trying to use businesses for good. And I don't mean eliminating plastic or carbon footprints. It could be good. Southwest Airlines was just trying to democratize the skies, make it so that people don't have to take the station wagon to go to grandma, but they can afford to fly, right? That's their good in their universe. So I, I wish that businesses have potential beyond profit and not enough people recognize that potential. That's fantastic. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button for more from the Kermali Exchange and leave a comment to join the conversation. See you next time.